Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Criminal justice reform is a hot topic of conversation, especially in the past few years. Maybe that's just because I'm now of age to be aware of the world. Um, But a lot of the time it focuses on the system itself. And that's not necessarily a problem. But today, on June 7th, 2022, we're going to be talking about one of the long-term and often overlooked effects of the criminal justice system in the United States, which is occupational licensing. You might not think that those two are related, but they are. I'm excited to have Matthew Mitchell on the podcast for the second time to look at this relationship. He's a senior research fellow and the director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Before we jump in, what is the most important thing that my generation should know that we don't, or the second, since you've been here before? Yes. So uh, I I was going to say, you know, my first answer the last time still applies, which is I think it's very helpful in conversations to be clear about uh, differences in normative and positive statements. That's, I think, a source of a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of disagreement and then ultimately a lot of policy mistakes. Uh, But beyond that, uh, I will have to go to my second my second one, uh, which is. Um, I just, you know, maybe at least speaking personally, I've come to realize that uh, that your your brain is attuned to different types of learning uh, at different stages of your life. Um, And so, you know, there's all this research that uh, people are extraordinarily creative in their younger years. Uh, They're less creative, but, you know, they have a a larger bulk of knowledge as they get older. Um, And one of the things that I've, uh, maybe as I'm careening towards middle age, uh, come to appreciate a little bit more here is uh, the wisdom of Hayek's quote that nobody can be a great economist who is only an economist. Um, And I think by that, he meant that if you really want to understand economics and exchange, you've got to understand culture, uh, which mediates exchange. You've got to understand institutions which uh, shape uh, how exchange can take place. You've got to understand evolutionary biology and our instincts uh, for that, that guide human interaction. Um, And so what this means is you've got to get a read as widely as, as possible uh, into, you know, biology and history, sociology, um, you know, criminology, history, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, institutions. It's just a much, much broader uh, set of tools, I think, that we need to better understand the world. And I used to be a little bit more of uh, in the mindset of trying to specialize. You know, you only have a certain amount of hours in a day and days in a year and, and uh, years in a lifetime. So you really you can gain by, by zeroing in and specializing in a toolkit. And there's, there's something to be said for that. I think maybe, especially when you're younger, but uh, as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate that uh, there's a time when you need to broaden your horizons and learn totally new types of toolkits and um, perspectives on the world. Great response. Um, Okay. So listeners, you should go ahead and listen to the episode we did a long time ago. Like, The podcast had a different name when we did this episode (laughs) Um, on occupational licensing and con laws. Go find out what that is um, for a 
bigger exploration of this. But let's set the scene with a recap. Can you remind us what occupational licensing is, how it works? Sure. So um, an occupational license is a regulation imposed typically at the state level. There are a few examples at the local and the federal level, but it's mostly a state creature where if you want to enter into an occupation, you have to first obtain a license, you know, not unlike a driver's license. And doing so requires you to typically pay some kind of a fee, um, take some kind of a test, and often um, attain a certain level of education. So this may be a certain number of hours in some kind of a training program. Uh, it may be as simple as, you know, obtaining a high school degree. Um, but economically, you know, we can think of these as barriers to entry. They limit supply. And the rationale behind them is that, well, some things are dangerous. Some types of occupations are dangerous. And so we need to uh, limit the number of people that go into those occupations to make sure that only the best come out. And we need to try to impose some certain types of requirements, um, you know, education requirements or something like that to make sure that we make those people who want to enter those occupations better able to serve the public. That's the rationale behind them. Uh, and then the, the final thing I'd note about, about them is that they have grown significantly over time. So um, there's about four or five times as, uh, as many jobs or, uh, or as much of the, the percentage of the workforce that needs a license in, in order to do their jobs has increased about four or five fold in the last several decades. Um, so that now about one in three Americans needs a license to do their job. What sort of jobs now compared to when these sorts of laws were introduced, what sorts of jobs require licenses um, and what caused the growth in licensure? Two great questions. So it used to be licensure, the evolution of licensure, one is from the medical industry, really. It used to be that was sort of the first uh, types of jobs that needed a license, uh, doctors and then nurses. Um, and that has now spread to all sorts of professions. Um, and it varies from state to state, but there's thousands of professions that, uh, for which you need a license, anything from, uh, carpentry and elect and electricians to, um, hair braiding, uh, cosmetology, barbering and cosmetology, by the way, are licensed in a hundred or in, uh, all 50 States. Um, you need a license, uh, to, uh, be a tour guide in some places. You need a license to be an interior decorator in some places. Um, so it's really, really expanded. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting about this expansion is that the way it kind of happens is through adjacent industries. So, uh, often what'll happen is, so like imagine, you know, barbering, once you have a license for barbering, then if somebody is doing something that's not quite barbering, but looks a little bit like barbering, like maybe they're braiding hair or they're doing cosmetology or something like that, then the barbers will go after them and say, hey, you're practicing um, barbering without a license, cease and desist. Um, and so then um, those folks will petition the state, get politically organized and ask for their own license, often, you know, carving it out from bar, uh, a barber license. And now you, now you've created a cosmetology license and then, you know, come down the road, down the road, there 
there will be a push for people who are doing hair braiding. Uh, the cosmetologist will try to shut them down and then they will petition for their own license. So that's sort of how it evolves over time. Um, it follows uh, probably the most important aspect of licensure is that the, and I'll, I'll get into the evidence here in a little bit, but uh, it protects businesses from competition. It does not protect uh, consumers from harm. That's really the, you know, the, uh, probably the bottom line that you should, you should know about licensure. And I mean, you can kind of see that if the intention behind who is appealing for these rules to be put in place, um, as it's grown, Mm -hmm. those people are the people who are trying to protect their jobs. So it's not necessarily for protecting the consumer anymore in the intention even. So then outcome hmm a little questionable right <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes it is well intentioned i i suspect you know the vast majority of people who support licensure for um medical professions believe that it protects consumers uh it's not super clear that it does even in those in those uh types of fields um it, to just to take you know uh, medical care for example uh one of the main reasons is that there's so many other instruments that are much better at ensuring uh consumers are protected a big one is that hospitals will not work with you know a doctor who's got a bad record um another one is uh medical malpractice insurance. Doctors pay higher premiums if they have a bad record. Uh, They can't get insured if they have a terrible record. Um, And that also, by the way, if you look at the way licensure works in the medical profession, um, the typical state will grant you a license to uh, be just a doctor. Uh, They don't specify what kind of field you're in. So, you know, a a doctor who is a psychiatrist may have done a rotation in the ER, you know, three decades earlier when she was in medical school. But as far as the state is concerned, she's allowed to uh, do brain surgery tomorrow, according to her, the the scope of practice of her license, typically. Um, So it's, it, it really, yet it really doesn't you know, stop people from doing bad things like that. Uh, other types of mechanisms are probably much more important um, in uh, protecting consumers. Wow. And so you mentioned that one of the common beliefs behind licensing, um, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but before we go into common beliefs, arguments, things like that, can you tell us about the general impact of these rules on prices, workers, consumers, competition, the economy? Sure. Sure. Okay. So uh, we could break this down a number of ways. So, uh, you know, just thinking back to Econ 101, you can think of a licensing regime as a limitation on supply or a supply shift leftward relative to what it would be in in a more free market. And, you know, basic economics offers us a number of hypotheses about what that should do. Uh, number one, we should expect there to be less uh, access, a lower quantity of services offered or rendered, or uh, uh, consumers will have less access to these services. So that's the leftward shift in Q, if you're thinking about a supply and demand diagram. Uh, two, we should expect prices to go up. Uh, all else being equal, if you have a lower supply of a product or a service, um, the general price is going to go up. Uh, three, 
those who happen to get a license, we would expect them to have a premium in terms of their wages uh, over those who don't have a license. Um, four, we would predict that those, uh, of course, who are not able to obtain a license are going to lose, lose out because they, uh, you know, don't have access to this, um, more lucrative, in, uh, industry. Uh, five, we would predict that, uh, over time, even those who obtain a license, uh, actually won't earn, you know, extraordinarily high, um, or above normal wages. And that's because, uh, eventually, you know, competition works uh, along all sorts of different margins, and eventually, the value of the license is uh, capitalized into um, programs to obtain the license. So, if you know a barber's license entitles you to a really high salary once you're licensed, well, then you're going to be willing, all else being equal, to spend a lot of time, money, and effort on barbering school, and the school itself is going to be able to capture a lot of that benefit. Um, and then uh, the final thing I think I'd note, uh, well, actually, two more two more points about you know the, the theory here is that y- you would tend to expect that these effects are not necessarily going to be uniform. Um, so. Uh, for example, you would expect, you know, people who are going to have a harder time obtaining the license, maybe because they don't, uh, they're not native, uh, language speakers, or, um, maybe because they move around for a lot of reasons, they travel or their, their spouses travel, um, that they're going to have a harder time obtaining a license. Um, and then the final thing is quality. The economic theory is not very, uh, clear on what this could be. You could imagine a story where licensure increases quality, only the highest, best qualified people get a license and get through. And and also the training imparts knowledge that makes them better able to serve people. Uh, So that's a theory that licensure should enhance quality. But on the other hand, um, licensure eliminates or or throttles competition. And we know that competition tends to enhance quality. Um, And also licensure by raising prices and limiting people's access to services, it may cause people to forgo services altogether. So for example, um, you know, imagine the case of an, uh, an electrician's license, if it makes electricians, um, much more scarce and, uh, much more expensive than people like me who have no business, you know, tearing open their walls and doing electrical work are maybe more likely to do that and might be more harmed. So that's kind of the basic economics of it. Um, uh, economic theory, and then we can turn to what does the data show? Yeah. So first little anecdote, when I went to college, I decided I wanted another piercing, another ear piercing. And so I was doing a little bit of research because I don't really trust, I don't know. I just, I don't walk into any random piercing salon. I don't trust people who tell me, like, I don't know, whoever's telling me that, like, I'm just going to go on the internet and figure it out for myself. So I'm looking on their website and they're like, oh, we're not licensed. And I was like, oh, cool. Awesome. (laughs) To me, that doesn't say anything. Right. Um, Go listen to the other (laughs) interview on licensing. Um, This idea has been instilled in me (laughs) for a long time, but Um, so, so my friends are like, oh no, that sucks. Like whatever, like that sucks, that sucks. But then I go because I've seen, like they put pictures, like it's very, I don't know if any of you listeners or Matt are familiar with how piercers kind of what their websites look like or their Instagrams, but it's very much like by the piercer, you see the images of the stuff they've pierced, the tattoos, they've done all that sort of stuff. And so you can kind of see, they give you a lot of evidence as to their efficiency and mm-hmm. 
how safe it is and like how it turns out. So I was very confident that I was making the right decision. So then I show up and they're like, oh, if you want two, it's the second one is 50% off if you get them at the same time. And I was like, wow, it costs like twice as much to get one piercing in Arlington, like at home. And, and so then I got two because I was like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's so cheap, but they're like the best piercers in Charlottesville and they're the only unlicensed piercers in Charlottesville. And I don't know that that's my little story about that it is being cheaper. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, okay. So then let's go to the quality. A common yeah. argument that's made is that it increases the quality, as you were saying. What does the research show and how do you respond to that claim? So, again, um, it's it, I, I typically start with, you know, the theory, which is ambiguous. Um, the next thing that you, you would want to try to understand is how the boards are comprised. Um, as, as it turns out, um, most of the boards uh, nationwide, those who sit on the boards do not represent consumers. They are typically members of the profession that is being regulated. Uh, so they don't necessarily have, you know, a strong interest in protecting consumer health or safety. Uh, their typical interest is protecting the profits of incumbent providers. Uh, the next question is looking at board activities. Um, here, it's a little harder to obtain this, but near as we can tell, the best evidence is that boards spend the vast majority of their time policing entry into the profession, not responding con to consumer complaints. Uh, most of the activities of the board are, you know, going after people who seem to be uh, trying to practice the profession without a license. Uh, but then finally is let's look at the data. What do the studies show? Um, and uh, most of the studies really actually are just ambiguous or unclear. So about 53% of the studies find that licensure has an unclear mixed or a neutral effect on quality. Um, most of the time, it's basically a um, uh, a, a non-result. There's no statistically significant difference in quality of care or quality of services in licensed and unlicensed professions. Um, of those that find a result, what's interesting is that there are three times as many studies that find that licensure undermines quality then find that it enhances quality. So yes, there are a few studies that find in particular fields, um, I believe midwifery is one of the main ones where it's been documented, uh, licensure may be able to improve outcomes. Um, but in three times as many studies, uh, there's actually a negative effect. Uh, one of them is exactly in the, the instance I um, uh, mentioned earlier, which is electricians. So actually uh, death by electrocution is statistically significantly more common in places where with stricter licensure requirements for electricians than in other places. Um, similarly, we there's evidence that people skip uh, eye exams and are more likely to encounter um, eye problems in places where um, optometry is more uh, stringently licensed and it's harder to obtain um, to get eyeglasses and to be fitted for eyeglasses. Um, similar effects in uh, uh, the field of uh, veterinarians, um, even in sanitation. Um, it's really a pretty well-documented phenomenon that uh, licensure, uh, if anything, it doesn't enhance quality. Uh, I, I still think, you know, it, mo mo the most likely effect is in, in most cases, it really just doesn't do much of anything. You mentioned the incentives kind of like the 
board is comprised of people who are not necessarily concerned with consumer safety or satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big focus of licensure. And I know you've looked at childcare rules specifically. Does licensure make children safer when they're in childcare? Would they be unsafe without it? Um, so, you know, for example, uh, we know that well child, uh, checkups are more, are more expensive. This isn't child care, but it's, uh, you know, child, is, uh, health and safety are, are more expensive in, uh, places where there's, uh, there's greater regulations. Uh, there is a paper on the unintended consequences of child care regulation, uh, that did it's, it's among those that find that there's no greater, uh, uh, outcome quality outcomes in term when you have, uh, higher regulations, uh, it's again, it's high, it's greater costs and uh, less access to care. So it's, yeah, it, it falls in, it, it's very much in line with the effects that we would predict. So let's move on to, I mean, now that we've gotten like a little bit of a picture of what this is and what the damage and, or trouble and, or, I would say barriers to entry is a good way to put it. It's not necessarily always harmful, but it's at the very least a frustration. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's examine the impact on former convicts, those who your research has shown are more impacted by this sort of thing. So first, who is hurt the most by occupational licensing rules? So, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, um, the effect is not uniform. Um, the rules uh, are particularly problematic for people who are, you know, military spouses who move around a lot and are more likely to be in licensed professions. Uh, immigrants uh, have been found to be uh, more likely to be have negative uh, employment outcomes as a result of licensure. Uh, people for whom English is a second language, often licensing um, tests require you to not only be proficient in the language, but even be proficient in legalese and understanding the, uh, sometimes they'll ask very specific technical questions about the law surrounding your profession. Um, but one of the most significant ones is those who have a criminal record. Um, so what this gets into is what, uh, uh, one researcher has called the period of invisible punishment. And the idea here is that after you step out of a jail cell or after you have been convicted, even if you never serve any time, you then enter this period where for the rest of the li- of your life, sometimes the state can deny you the ability to practice um, in the profession of your choosing. And so nationwide, uh, there are what we call collateral consequences of conviction, um, and we can measure them. There's about 16,000 limitations on occupational professional licensure in the statute books around the country. Uh, there's another 13,000 limitations on your ability to obtain a business license um, if you have a conviction. Um, so this is big uh, because the United States incarcerates uh more people than than um, almost any other country on earth, more than um, any country that that faithfully reports its data, probably does not incarcerate more than China, uh, but they don't 
faithfully report their data. Um, and it's about um, six times the incarceration rate of other uh, wealthy industrialized countries. But beyond that, um, we have large numbers of people who are walking around that have criminal records. Um, so by one estimate, it's about one in five. Um, and the number gets even larger if you think about the number of people who are walking around who could have criminal records. Uh, the best estimate is that about seven in 10 Americans have at one point in their life done something that could have landed them uh, in jail. And so almost all of us are, uh, you know, potential victims here, and almost all of us could be denied indefinitely the ability to practice, uh, you know, in the professions of our choosing. So it has a really big impact impact on those with criminal records. And what sorts of crimes does do these laws um, impact? Like, what's what sort of a crime counts for you? to have this sort of law working against you? Yeah. So uh, we can look at this a couple of different ways. One, we can uh, sort of zoom in on the data um, and, and uh, have a look at that. The other way we can think about it is by looking at a few case studies. So uh, on the data, so let me just take, take Colorado, for example. So um, it is more common for you to be for there to be a, a uh, collateral consequence of conviction in a crime involving misdemeanors or controlled substances in the state of Colorado, than it is for you to be denied a license for a sex offense um, or uh, a violent crime. So, uh, you know, you might, listeners might be thinking, well, who cares if uh, you can't, you know, if there's a, if you can't get a teacher's license, if you've uh, been convicted of a, a sexual offense involving a minor. Like that seems like a, that seems like a no brainer. That's, that's not a problem. And I'd agree with them. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the big driver of the problem. In a lot of cases, people can be denied a, a crime for just any felony or denied a license for just any felony, um, or, uh, any misdemeanor. Um, it doesn't even have to be for, for violence. Um, and in many cases, it's not specific to the type of um, there doesn't need to be a connection between the crime and the um, license being sought. So that's one reform, in fact, that a lot of states are, are pursuing that I think is a, it makes sense is, you know, if you have a conviction for a uh, crime of fraud, um, maybe it makes sense that you not get a license, not be able to obtain a license to be a, an accountant. Um, or again, if you have a, a conviction for a child sexual crime, um, by all means, you shouldn't be allowed to have a license to be a teacher. Um, but requiring that connection is important. Uh, okay. So that's, that's one thing is just recognizing that, uh, misdemeanors and, um, even controlled substance offenses are actually seem to be more common than violence or, or sexual crimes. The other thing is to, to zoom in on particular cases. Cause I think that helps you better understand it. So, uh, take Sonja Blake. She's a Wisconsin grand grandmother. Uh, she'd been running a daycare for, uh, about a decade when her owner daycare owner certificate was revoked and her occupational license was stripped because three decades earlier, she'd been found guilty of receiving $294 in public assistance over payments. Um, take another example. Um, the state of California, in order to address a shortage of firefighters, had spent time and money training uh, Dar Dario Garola to fight fires 
when he was in custody. Um, right now, the state will allow him to work as a seasonal firefighter, um, but it categorically bans him from obtaining an EMT license to work year round because he has two felony convictions. Uh, his crimes are now 15 years old. They uh, have no connection to the profession he's trying to enter, and yet he faces a lifetime ban during uh, this period of invisible punishment. Uh, and finally, take the, take the case of Rudy Carey. Um, he spent years battling drug and alcohol addiction, um, and during that time, he made uh, you know, his share of mistakes. And one mistake, assault, landed him in jail. Fifteen years ago, he turned his life around. Uh, and he wanted to help others do the same. This is not an uncommon story. People who battled alcohol or drug conviction often or addiction often want to help others. Uh, so he completed hours of coursework and training and became a substance abuse counselor in Virginia. Uh, uh, five years into his career as a counselor in Fredericksburg, uh, the state sent his employer a cease and desist letter saying that uh, he'd been banned from counseling for life because of his 2004 conviction and he lost his job. Uh, so this just kind of gives you a flavor of uh, a sense of the problem. And the firefighter example really just sounds like the state is using this guy because they need firefighters. Mm -hmm. But then they're like, ah, ah, ah. we're only using you as much as we want to. Right. Ah, that's just so. That's so unfortunate. I feel like, I mean, we were talking about this before we actually started recording, but this goes into the the whole concept. I mean, we were talking about it in terms of addicts and reentering society, especially after spending time in jail, um, because a lot of these convictions will land you in jail, even if you are a struggling addict. Mm -hmm. um, these sorts of laws seem to really become, I mean, obviously a barrier to entry in terms of like the economic sense, but even in terms of cultural and societal reentry. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. It's well, it, so it, it's self-defeating in a number of ways. So, you know, one, as I mentioned with the firefighter example, the state of California actually paid for his training. Um, and that's not all that uncommon. There's a, you know, plenty of cases of people learning how to become uh, barbers at the, the state's expense while they're in jail and then they come out in a different uh, agency, the barbering, the barber's license commission, you know, won't allow them to obtain a license. So that's self-defeating. Uh, the other way in which it's self-defeating is that the connection is that there's this very strong connection between recidivism and unemployment. Uh, it's in fact, one of the best predictors of recidivism is um, unemployment or underemployment. Um, so if the whole goal of, uh, you know, the justice system is to rehabilitate people so that they can get back out, out into the world and become productive, good members of society. We're really shooting ourselves in the foot if we then deprive them of the ability to obtain um, fulfilling and well-paying jobs once they get out, uh, because that makes them more likely to, con con um, to recidivate and go rent land right back in jail. And I mean, I kind of use context there, but at the beginning I was like, what is recidivate? How do you even say that again? <laughs> so give us a quick definition just for me. Oh, recidivism just means it's a, a, you know, committing a crime and going back to jail after you've already been released. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's, that, I don't know. That's just sad. And I don't know, to me, it seems blatantly obvious, but Let's get into that. Um, mm -hmm. You've been testifying in several states 
trying to encourage the legislature to remove these sorts of barriers for people, especially people with a record. Um, You've noted, I mean, you were talking about how many people, how many Americans have criminal records. But in this one testimony I read, you noted that there are 66 million Americans. Think about 66 million. That means that at all time in the United States, literally all the time, there are 66 million Americans, maybe even more, who face restrictions to work. And as you were saying, people who haven't been caught, whether they should be caught or not, um, Mm -hmm. who could be facing these restrictions. Right. So how have legislators received your testimony on this issue and what have the responses been? What have the states been doing? So um, it may be helpful to kind of think of the context of uh, how criminal justice has evolved over time. So First of all, for most of the existence of the republic, it was relatively stable in terms of the you know type numbers of people who were uh, found themselves in jail. But then, beginning around 1970, the incarceration rate rose uh, precipitously, and it continued to rise for the next you know over three decades. So um, by around 2005, about 15 years ago, it basically um, tapered off and then began, it's been declining since, which is nice. It's still, the incarceration rate now is still 629 um, persons in the United States per 100,000 residents uh, are uh, incarcerated. And this is what I referred to earlier when I was saying, you know, this is a significantly higher rate than you find in uh, other countries. So, you know, uh, compared that, that works out that 629 works out to be, you know, 100 times the rate in Canada and Greece and Italy, more than 100 times the rate in Sweden and Germany. Um, and it's uh, but more than three times the, the world average. So it's significantly higher. Um, so, you know, one of the things I'm sure your listeners know is that there has been a little bit more of a bipartisan concern in the last few years about overcriminalization. Um, you know, sort of an alliance between fiscally conser- fiscal conservatives who are worried about how much we're spending on incarceration um, and, uh, you know, social social liberals or, or social libertarians who are worried about the uh, consequences of having so many people who are, who are locked up. Uh, and so this I do think it has made people much more receptive. And interestingly enough, it's a nice way to uh, to get Democrat uh, legislators to think a little bit about the consequences of regulation. Um, I've even, you know, talked to legislators who are excited. Uh, Democrat legislators, I think, would describe themselves as progressive, who are excited about instituting reforms that protect economic liberties, which I think is not something that's typically on their mind. Um, so that's been nice. Uh, of course, now in in re- just the last two or three years uh, with the pandemic, the crime rate has has gone up. Uh, again. And so uh, I think there's been a little bit of a chilling effect and legislators are uh, slightly less receptive to reforms than they were about three or four years ago, unfortunately. What sorts of reforms, I mean, other than like stripping it entirely, you mentioned that making sure the, um, the crime, if it was going to work against you in the labor market, that it was actually tied to the job you wanted to get. What other sorts of reforms 
are possible or do you, that you recommend? Yeah, so there's a number. Um, so one is, uh, yeah, requiring that the uh, a license can't be denied for an irrelevant offense. It needs to be related. Another would be uh, ensuring that a license cannot be denied without considering rehabilitation, whether the uh, 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 the person applying for the license has been rehabilitated. Um, another would be uh, that a amazingly enough, a large number of states can, uh, licenses can be denied for an arrest, even if there was no conviction. Um, so eliminating that would be a, a big step in the right direction. Um, creating a right to appeal a denied license would be significant. Um, another one would be to, uh, create a petition process so that those with criminal records can ask a board before they apply for a license if their record might jeopardize it and the board would be required to respond within 30 days. And if they fail to respond within 30 days, then their license cannot be denied. Um, so those, are, I think, are some, some common sense reforms. I think when you start to peel the onion and you get back to those numbers, however, that you know there are one in five Americans with a, a record uh, and that the, you know seven in 10 Americans have done something in their life that could potentially have given them a record, now you start to get to the problem of overcriminalization. And that's, I think, a much more uh, difficult thing to, thing to, uh, to deal with. Um, one other thing... I, proposal, I think that I, I'm not seeing anybody suggest this, but it's something I've been thinking about more recently is, uh, you know, a, a large part of convictions are uh, happen through the uh, plea bargaining process. And there's quite a bit of debate about the degree to which pleas are coerced. I know you've had uh, Jason Brennan and I think you had Clark Neely on at one point too talking about yep. this. Yeah. So, um, you know, one simple reform is I think, um, I don't, to my knowledge, typically when a, somebody is putting a uh, plea in front of the defendant, the defendant is not told uh, any of the collateral consequences. They're not told that if you sign this, um, not only, you know, are you going to get this on your record, but that means that you're, uh, you know, blocking yourself from being able to, uh, enter into all sorts of professions, start all sorts of businesses. Uh, oh, by the way, you'll also be denied the ability to serve on a jury um, and you might lose your voting rights and all those those types of things. I, those are typically not mentioned. So a very simple reform would be to um, require essentially sort of a Mirandizing uh, type process for when you are offered a plea bargain um, that, you know, it makes sure that defendants know that by signing this, they're, they're signing away certain rights. I had no idea that that sort of stuff isn't mentioned. I mean, I would hope that your lawyer would tell you, but also given that in a lot of cases, public defendants are used. I mean, not to mm -hmm. not to shame public defendants. You're doing good work, but it's not necessarily there. There aren't as many incentives as if it would be private to um, ensure that you would fully inform your client. Right. Um, and plus, what is that added security in knowing that you have these rights or that these rights would be evoked? That's a, that is a good idea. Um, thank you so much. I wish we had more time. But before we close, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? That's a great question. So um, there's a couple of things. I think probably um, the biggest one is in terms of strategy. 
you know, there was a time, um, probably when I was your age that I kind of thought that the best way to make the world better was to make everybody classical, a classical liberal and, you know, buy into the whole philosophy. Uh, and, um, as I've worked, I guess, as a, um, professional economist trying to make the world a better place. I've come to uh, appreciate Abraham Lincoln's idea that, you know, it's best to stand with anybody who stands right and stand with him while he is right and part with him when he's wrong. Um, there are, you can achieve a whole lot of good in the world if you are just willing to look for, uh, you know, opportune partnerships, times to f- form, uh, you know, unusual coalitions. And the, I think this is a perfect example where, uh, as I said, you know, fiscal conservatives and um, civil libertarians can get together and, and achieve ends that are mutually beneficial. And then they can part ways when it comes to other issues. That's fine. You don't have to always, you know, buy into everything, uh, you know, an ideology wholesale to achieve some good social change. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.